0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase health care capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond.
1: Hi, I'm Shiv and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Stephen Scheinman, who is the president and dean of the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine and Geisinger's chief academic officer and executive vice president. Board-certified in internal medicine and nephrology, Dr. Scheinman has earned international prominence for his research into the genetics of inherited kidney diseases and kidney stones. He's also the board chair of the National Residency Match Program, which many of our audience are obviously very interested in. I'd like to also thank Lois Nora, who put Dr. Scheinman on our radar. She was a previous guest on Raise the Line and used to be the dean of the Commonwealth Medical College before it became the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. So Dr. Scheinman, thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Very happy to be here, Chef.
1: So you wear a lot of different hats, and I'd love to start off by asking you how you got interested in in medicine and then specifically nephrology.
0: Well, I was a relative latecomer to medicine. I entered medical school as a philosophy major, convinced I was going to be a college professor. But uh, I got turned on for the first time to science in college and uh, excited by the potential that I thought medicine offered for a career that would span academics, as well as uh, service and research. And so um, I uh, remained a philosophy major, but completed my pre-med requirements. And in medical school, I was excited by physiology. I was excited by clinical aspects of nephrology, but also the science of it, and uh, by some very inspiring role models in medical school, which I think are always enormously important in student's and and resident's choice of a career. So I went into internal medicine and then uh, nephrology, and uh, I'm very pleased that my view of medicine turned out to be correct. It was a remarkable opportunity to do research and be deeply involved in science that is directly relevant to the welfare of patients, to uh, teach, which in many ways I consider the highest calling, and to be allowed into the lives of patients as physicians are like nobody else. So uh, I think it's an enormous gift to pursue medicine and particularly academic medicine. And uh, I can't believe that that 20-year-old kid in college made such a good decision.
1: That's pretty awesome. I actually didn't know about the philosophy background. We've uh, previously interviewed Daryl Kirsch, who used to be the WMC president, as you know, and I believe he was a philosophy major or history major, it came from definitely the social sciences, which was an important part of like when they reformed the MCAT, talking about trying to find a more broad base of students, not just ones who've done STEM.
0: Well, uh, Daryl is a good friend and I think an inspiring uh, leader. And I think you're raising a great point, which I believe uh, strongly, which is that preparation in the humanities and in the liberal arts develops to your skills of critical thinking. And certainly a physician needs to know science, but I think people who don't pursue uh, interests outside of science, as Shiv, I know you do in your personal life, are not fully developing their opportunities. So um, I think that's a really valuable point.
1: So uh, moving forward into your career at Geisinger, Geisinger has quickly become one of the most preeminent uh, health systems in the U.S. And there's been a lot of Great headlines, I know, from the news about Geisinger and how you all have expanded. Can you tell us a bit more about how you've assumed your role, what led you to Geisinger, and what are some of the priorities you all have faced, maybe even pre-COVID, and then we'll obviously get into COVID and how that's adjusted uh, what you do?
0: Yes, well, uh, I uh, became dean of this school, uh, I'm in my ninth year now, but the school has only been Geisinger for about three and a half years. Uh, it was originally founded as an independent medical school without a clinical system or a parent university, founded by the community with a goal to improve the health of the community. Unfortunately, the financial model of the school was not sustainable without revenue stream from other sources. So the school uh, ran into some early problems. Uh, Lois Nora came in as the interim president and dean and really righted the ship. Uh, but there was much that needed uh, to be addressed. And when I was looking at this job originally nine years ago, it was very clear to me that the best opportunity for the school, not just financially, but also uh, in terms of educational opportunities for the students would be to join with Geisinger at the time, the uh, uh, politics and competition in this part of the state did not make that possible, but with uh, several developments that occurred over the next several years, it did become possible that Dr. David Feinberg, who became the CEO of Geisinger, had the vision that Geisinger was not complete without a medical school, and that this medical school was not complete without a clinical system. And so on January 1st of 2017, we became the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. And it opened up enormous opportunities for program development and for our students. And I'll give you a few examples. Geisinger's uh, My Code initiative, which you may be familiar with, is the largest genome sequencing initiative in the country. Uh, and uh, at this point, has uh, collected DNA samples and consented a quarter of a million people, all of whom are on the same electronic medical record and represent a relatively stable population. They don't move in and out as they do in more metropolitan areas. So uh, many of these are people in multi-generation families. It's a goldmine for genetic discovery. And these people are all having a whole exome sequencing. uh, And a number of other things are unique about this initiative. Uh, The results When they are actionable results that can lead to protecting patients from genetic risk of cancer, heart disease, neurologic disease, then those results are being returned to the patient. Uh, Results are also being entered into the patient's medical record. And so it's a very different approach to research from what other uh, genetic research projects do. So this forms a rich opportunity for uh, education for students. Geisinger has also got a very proactive approach towards managing health. The typical medical center manages disease often superbly, but managing disease after it's already manifest is at the tail end of where we need to be. Geisinger is taking an approach uh, that our mission is to make better health easier and to manage health. When you look at why Healthcare outcomes are worse in America than in any other industrialized nation. The single largest reason is that while we spend much more than anybody else per capita on medical care, we spend far less on improving the social determinants that are, in the end, more important in determining health outcomes than access to or quality of medical care. Geisinger is taking the approach that we need to address those things. And because Geisinger insures many of the patients that it cares for, the financial model of keeping patients healthy, keeping them out of the hospital and out of the emergency room, is a sustainable winning model for an integrated care delivery system like Geisinger. Whereas in traditional healthcare systems without an insurance arm, Their financial interests are served best when patients are sicker, have more procedures, get hospitalized more often, and are are in and out of the ED. And so in a healthcare system whose approach is to improve the health of the population it serves, I think we can educate the next generation that that is the mission of physicians, that your responsibility goes beyond addressing the disease that the patient came into your office for that day and in fact, improving their health overall. And so we are now shifting the emphasis of our curriculum to primary care. And we are taking advantage of Geisinger's signature primary care innovations, like Geisinger 65 Forward, which is a holistic approach to geriatric care, like the fresh food pharmacy that actually gives patients fresh food and trains them how to cook it and get them away from processed foods which has demonstrated remarkable benefit in hemoglobin A1C levels uh, in diabetics and blood pressure in hypertensive patients and in obesity. And uh, Geisinger at Home is a program whereby the Geisinger team, not just the physician and the nurse, but the whole team comes to the patient's home for those patients who have uh, complex multiple diseases. And it keeps them out of the hospital and keeps them healthier. And Geisinger saves money on that because it's the insurer. And so all of these form the basis for an exciting approach to educating students in primary care. And that genomics initiative forms the basis as well, because when you can identify up front a patient's genetic risk of cancer or other diseases, that belongs in the primary care setting. You need to put those tools in the hands of the primary care physician who can then manage whatever is necessary to protect that patient from those diseases and the patient's family. And so all of this forms the basis for our new curriculum in primary care about which we are enormously excited, but wait, there's more because Geisinger has made a commitment like everybody else. We need more primary care physicians. And so Geisinger has made a commitment to the students that if you agree to train in primary care and, Return to Geisinger after your residency as a primary care physician. Geisinger will support you in this medical school for free. No tuition payments, fees waived, and a $2,000 a month stipend. It's modeled after the public health service and military programs. And those students commit to primary care or psychiatry. They can then do their residency and match wherever they want to. They don't need to train at Geisinger. But at the end of their three or four years of training, they come back to Geyser and work for four years as a primary care physician or psychiatrist. And by that point, they will have learned what it's like to work in a forward-thinking healthcare system at which the health of the patient not managing disease is foremost. And even if they want to work somewhere else, they're going to be hard-pressed to find someplace else that gives them the tools to do that.
1: That's pretty incredible. I actually was not familiar with that program um which is super needed especially given that the median debt of a graduating medical student last I saw from the WMC is $200,000. Is that uh, I know I heard about this Abigail Geisinger scholarship. Is that what you're referring to or is that something else?
0: Yes, this is the Abigail Geisinger Scholars Program and we're we're really very excited about it. When it was launched a couple of years ago, it did not include the stipend and it did not restrict the career choice, you could choose any specialty. But when we decided to modify the curriculum and uh, expand the program from 10 students to 45 students in each class, out of a class of 115. So it's a large portion of the class making this commitment an enormous amount of revenue that we're foregoing. Uh, when we did that, we um, focused it uh, on primary care. And those debt numbers are very real. That $200,000 number is the national number. But because we have a priority to serve this region, we give students from this region a great uh, advantage in, in the admission selection process. So although only 2% of our applicants are from the region of Northeast and Central Pennsylvania, over a third of our students are from this region, and that's because we favor them so much in admission. And what that means also is that a quarter of our students are the first generation of their family to go to college. And so many of our students are from disadvantaged backgrounds and have no source to support the cost of medical school but to uh, go into debt. So our median debt is 240000 So an additional value of this Abigail Geisinger Scholars Program is that it gives them the opportunity to graduate debt-free from medical school.
1: That's incredible. Um, So, I'm curious, uh, you know, you've talked a bit about not only the innovation in terms of the funding and, you know, finding, finding students from the area from disadvantaged or underrepresented backgrounds, and then hopefully keeping them involved in more primary care type environments. Can you t- give us a sense of the size and scale of your training programs? Because you, as the chief academic officer, not only oversee the medical school, but there's a lot of other programs as residencies. Um, and the reason we call this podcast, Raise the Line, is it's all about how do we strengthen the healthcare system? One way is by getting more primary care doctors and psychiatrists trained up.
0: Yes. And so we have a, a portfolio of residency and fellowship programs with over 500 residents and fellows, uh, 58 accredited residencies and fellowships and a handful of unaccredited fellowships in new fields that don't have boards yet. And uh, so it it spans the full range of training programs. And our excitement about taking some of Geisinger's innovations in genomics and system science and population health and incorporating them into the curriculum of the MD program uh, goes as well for the residency and fellowship programs. Uh, and so we've got a curricular effort to uh, offer a training in all these areas to our residents and fellows uh, where they can earn certification in those fields that we offer master's degrees in. And those certificates include credits that get them about halfway towards a master's in genomics or population health or uh, healthcare informatics or biomedical science. And we're developing additional degree programs. Our graduate school is pretty new. But we also have coordinated training programs across the residencies and fellowships and communication skills. We use our simulation center to train students in communication skills uh, and in difficult conversations, all of which became tremendously valuable when COVID hit because uh, in the challenge where a patient is dying alone in the hospital without their family members, the ability uh, to gear up, to train the residents and fellows, to have those kinds of conversations in that setting, we were ready to do that. And of course, we do that for end-of-life conversations and for a range of other conversations. That's just a glimpse of the kinds of programs that we offer to enhance the residency and fellowship curricula for our graduate medical education trainees. We call the umbrella that embraces all of these opportunities for our residents, fellows and attending staff, the Geisinger Academy.
1: That's great. So yeah, continuous lifelong learning is, is definitely part of the system it seems. And so you mentioned COVID and how this Geisinger Academy helped prepare many of your trainees and, and clinicians to have those more difficult conversations. Can you walk us through since March when COVID started becoming very big in the U.S., kind of what changes you guys made, uh, including potentially maybe accelerated graduation of medical students if you did that in the, four, in the fourth year. We'd love to hear how Geisinger responded.
0: Certainly, because like every other medical school in the country, we, we had to deal with this in very short order. Uh, and so the week of St. Patrick's Day when uh, everybody closed everything, we closed our campus. Within a space of four days, we moved all of the didactics for the MD program to online. We were very fortunate that we already had our graduate degrees with an online option and we had the infrastructure to deliver online education, but we hadn't been making best use of it in the MD program and our faculty galvanized to convert the entire um, didactic portion of the MD program to online and we kept the campus closed from uh, March 17th through July. And the clinical uh, education also was moved entirely to online. And so uh, students were pulled from a clinical setting. At a time, you know, this was in response to the AMC's advice to all medical schools. And we followed that advice. But I will tell you, I had very mixed feelings about it because these are students who were enthusiastic about rolling up their sleeves and really being heroes. And so uh, a number of them wanted to graduate early to go to uh, the cities where they had to which they had matched in programs which were being hit by COVID. And so, it, to allow students to do that, uh, the faculty voted some additional flexibility in the graduation requirements. And so, for those students who requested it, we graduated them uh, in early April. About a quarter of the class took advantage of that. But COVID also forced us to take a fresh look at how we deliver curriculum because suddenly we were doing it very differently. Uh, and so a number of lessons learned in COVID, and when I say lessons learned, I don't mean mistakes made. I mean things we were forced to improvise on that turned out to be enormously valuable uh, will stick with us and will be helpful going forward. And it happened at a time when we were already in the midst of renewing our curriculum after 10 years as in existence as a medical school we thought we needed to take a completely fresh look at our curriculum and rewrite it. And so the faculty were in the process of doing that uh, and COVID gave them a fresh perspective on curriculum. So I'll give you a few examples. Uh, First of all, our didactic, when I say didactics the first two years of medical school, which in the new curriculum will be condensed to a year and a half, about 23% of their time was in lectures, but the new curriculum will reduce that down to zero. And the virtual learning allows us to do that in a very interactive way without gathering them in a large room. So we can still gather them physically. We'll be able to, and it is safe, but it's given us greater facility with all of the electronic tools. Uh, It's also caused us to improvise in the clinical setting. So we invented, Dr. Peggy Shoemaker, who uh, runs our uh, internal medicine curriculum, invented with one of our ICU fellows, Dr. Cass Lippold, an EICU whereby a student in the comfort of their own bedroom, which is where most of our students are Zooming in from, can round with the ICU team. Uh, The student's face appears on the TV screen in the patient's room. The student can talk to the patient and to the team. The attendings can quiz the student. The students can see all the numbers and has all the data. They can't feel the patient's liver, but they can ask someone to describe it and give, give them that information if they need it. So uh, we're publishing this, and the EICU will remain part of our curriculum. In the space of just a month, Geisinger as a system went from 80, 80 telemedicine visits a week to 20,000. And half of those telemedicine visits are virtual with video. And in a large rural area like this, That's tremendously valuable. Uh, And so we have incorporated into the curriculum now telemedicine. That is something that will remain in our curriculum long term. We have moved the teaching of anatomy, which we were still doing largely with cadaver dissection. We've got a wonderful cadaver lab, and that will remain an enhancement to our anatomy curriculum. But we have acquired three Sectra tables thanks to COVID. And that allows us to teach anatomy virtually. Students can visualize it, as I'm sure you know, Shiv, much more effectively than they can in a greasy monochromatic cadaver that is uh, not very lifelike, as you'll remember. So when we get past this, and I don't want to say when we're past COVID, because like the flu, we will never be past COVID. We'll just hopefully reach a point when it is less dominant in our lives than it is now then these learnings will be with us and will help propel our curriculum, both in primary care and beyond.
1: Thank you for that, rundown. That aligns with a lot of what we've heard from other systems. Like we had Michael Gustafsson, president of UMass on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. He mentioned similarly, they had as a system only done a couple of thousand telemedicine appointments. And then within the span of a couple of months had to do 150,000. So 80 a week to 20,000 a week, is tremendous. Great to hear things like the EICU uh, which is kind of the reverse, the physicians at home talking to patients in the hospital versus, you know, physicians in the hospital talking to patients at home. I would like to um, talk a bit about some of the interprofessional education as well, if you don't mind, because your pr- focus on primary care is very interesting and, and and obviously behavioral health and psychiatry. There will always be a limitation, it seems, on how many primary care physicians and psychiatrists there are. So it seems like care coordination and, and bringing on psychologists, bringing on nutritionists, will be increasingly important. What is your view on that? And how do you think that'll change uh, moving forward?
0: I think that's enormously important because with the aging of the population and the relatively fixed funding for GME, year by year, we're going to need to be better and better at team-based care and in empowering every member of that team to be working at the top of their license. And I think even to be expanding their licensure to encompass more um, because primary care physicians, specialists, psychiatrists, there're just not going to be enough of them to care for everybody. And so we need to uh, expand in professional education. We need to train everybody to be working in teams uh, and we need to be supporting them uh, as they do that. And so there are a number of areas of medicine that are already very team-based. Uh, certainly in the inpatient setting that's quite common. Uh, but we need to get better at doing that in the outpatient setting and in primary care uh, and providing the support for that. I, uh, and so that is something that is very important in our curriculum. At Geisinger, we host over 5,000 learners in a wide range of specialties. Not all of them are our own students. We host students from other colleges and universities who are training in a wide range of professions. And in some of those professions, Geisinger is Uh, at the uh, cutting edge in expanding professional activities. I'll give you an example, pharmacy. Geisinger has uh, innovated in pharmacy in in a way that they empower the pharmacists to prescribe and manage. Uh, At this point, it's about 16 or 17 major diagnoses in which the physicians have delegated to the pharmacists, prescribing authority, prescribing, for example, for anticoagulation, which, uh, you know, I I did a lot of anticoagulation in my practicing career, and I can tell you that a lot of it was done by gut. A lot of it was done by just looking at the pro time and looking at the patient and factoring in, in my own uh, imperfect computer up here, what other meds they were on, et cetera, and then adjusting uh, their doses. The pharmacists have specific algorithms for prescribing anticoagulation that takes into account all the data they have access to through Geisinger's extensive electronic medical record. These algorithms look like the wiring diagram for a nuclear reactor, and you need a computer to run them. And the pharmacists do the prescribing. And um, an organization in Sweden that rates health systems across the world, two years ago, rated Geisinger number one in the world for the best anticoagulation outcomes. And that's just one area in which the pharmacists are prescribing. They're prescribing in heart failure and diabetes and hypertension, adjusting meds, renewing meds. And this has had demonstrated benefit in health outcomes for the patients. It also relieves the physician's time of some burdens. Um, And uh, so that is an example of how the pharmacists are empowered. They're also part of the team, they not, not just round with the team on hospital rounds. But we have pharmacists embedded in all of the outpatient clinics, and so they are available to consult with the primary care docs as they're prescribing all across the Geisinger system. So I think you're exactly right, Shiv. I think that we can't put all of the burden of care on physicians when we know that the inadequacy of physicians to the demand is simply going to grow.
1: That's a great, very specific example, and reminds me of when I was in med school at Hopkins. I, I did a rotation with a pharmacist actually uh, in the hospital, and that was eye opening because very little of my own education was around what these other professions do. I knew about as much about what a pharmacist did as, say, an average person on the street. I know we're coming up in time, but a couple of quick questions. One is, um, so going back to the curricular reform that you were doing even before COVID became uh, everything we talk about these days, I think one way we got connected to to Geisinger through Bill Jeffries, who uh, helped lead the curricular transformation at University of Vermont and went lecture-free. Uh, and I distinctly remember a good call I had with him back in January about the goal of going you know, lecture-free at Geisinger. And so I wanted to give him a quick shout out and maybe hear a bit about some of the other lasting changes that are happening in your curriculum. It sounds like primary care, telehealth, genetics—anything else that we should be aware of?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for the shout out to Bill Jeffries. He's our vice dean for medical education, and he's the one who's overseeing our curricular renewal. And so he's he's front and center. And and uh, he, something that he's very excited about, that the clinical system is excited about, would be a streamlined three plus three program accelerating graduation from medical school for those entering primary care. We haven't worked out the details on this yet, but we're going to be piloting it in our Geisinger-Lewistown Hospital, which is one of the smaller hospitals in the Geisinger system. We're very excited about that. One thing that COVID has prompted us to do is to take a fresh look at our graduate programs. We offer a number of master's degrees, and we had a pretty traditional approach to them originally we moved them all to online before COVID. We were doing that anyway, at least as an option for students. But another thing that we've moved forward with is changing the calendar and adding flexibility for graduate students. And so graduate students, rather than having to enter just in August once a year, uh, we now have four points of entry into our graduate program. Students can enter in the summer, fall, winter, and spring. And once we are able to uh, do in-person education, those options will remain. We're also adding programming. We've got COVID courses now, uh, not just in the MD program, but also in the graduate program and in the Geisinger Academy for residents, fellows, attending physicians, and other health professionals across Geisinger. One emphasis of the Geisinger Academy is other health professionals, advanced practitioners, and a wide range of health professionals who train and practice uh, at Geisinger.
1: Wow, that's great to hear, and again uh, speaks to the commitment to continuous learning that you you're trying to integrate into the system. Switching gears to your other role as the chair of the board of the National Residency Match Program, I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to meet and interview Mona Signer, the president, and. A lot of our audience is obviously very interested to know how the NRMP is adjusting because of COVID. And in general, because before COVID, right, the NBME went pass fail with step one. Uh, Now there's all these interviews that are being done virtually. So I'd love to hear a bit more about COVID and non-COVID related updates from the NRMP that you're willing to share.
0: Happy to do that. And uh, certainly COVID has added a lot to what was already a very stressful process fourth-year medical students live in fear of the match, not because they don't trust the match itself, but because they're afraid of the competition for residency slots. And it's unfortunate that they feel that way for several reasons. One is that we know that the success rate of American graduates in the match is well over 90%, and that those who don't match fail to match largely because they've limited their options to very competitive specialties And that a large percentage of them in subsequent years are then again successful. So it's it's also unfortunate because the role of audition rotations has grown to dominate the experience of the fourth year, which I think is tremendously unfortunate. When I was in medical school, I remember presenting my advisor with a proposed schedule for my fourth year that included a lot of rotations in internal medicine to prepare myself for residency. And he said, you are going to be spending the rest of your career, you're going to do three years of residency training, internal medicine. You're spending the rest of your career doing it. Why do you want to waste your fourth year on that? Why don't you do things you're never going to do again, like orthopedics and neurology and pediatric specialties, things that will broaden your experience? I think that's excellent advice. But instead, students these days will do four or five or six rotations in the same specialty to make themselves competitive in that specialty. It's, I think, a waste of the fourth year. And what COVID has done is change that. So well, the AAMC has uh, closed VSAS and advised programs not to entertain visiting students, you know, with exceptions for the military and it's a certain limited other circumstances. And so students, I think, will be making better use of their fourth year than they were doing before. Virtual interviewing is universal now for residency programs and medical schools. Uh, And while you lose something there, you lose the ability to get a flavor of the city and of the campus and of the people. I think we do appreciate that it reduces cost a lot, and it uh, still allows you to learn a lot about these programs. I think that is something that we'll have to see, but I think that is likely to stick with us. Now, everything I've just been describing is independent of the NRMP. The NRMP does not set rules for interviewing or for selection or for rotations. The NRMP is simply the match in the terms of the match participation agreement. Uh, but we are very much engaged in participating in the discussions with USMLE about the step exams, discussions with ACGME and other organizations about adaptations. and We provide input to them. And the board is very sensitive to the circumstances of students in the match and uh, as needs arise, willing to adapt to that. But in terms of the match process, we've needed to adjust very little. There are some deadlines that have shifted a bit in parallel with the ARIS deadlines shifting. But we have students and residents, including an osteopathic student and a resident graduate of a foreign medical school, on the board of the NRMP. This is intentional. This is built into the bylaws of the NRMP. It is very important that the student and trainee perspective be represented on the NRMP board. And I can tell you having been on that board for 10 years now, those voices are the ones that people care about the most. And there are so many phenomenal people recommended to that board that the ones who actually get selected for that board are really remarkable. Um, I've learned a lot from them.
1: That's really great to hear that you're having the trainee voices uh, highly represented there. And since we're coming up in time, I had uh, one last question, which is, given that our audience is, you know, millions of current and future healthcare professionals, what advice would you give to someone considering a career in healthcare or already on their pursuit? And then anything else uh, to wrap up, anything else that you'd like to share that that I haven't gotten to?
0: First of all, I think your questions have really brought out some um, very uh, important points, but I often say, and I'm sure students in, in all professions have heard this Despite the woes and the headaches that you may hear from people who have been in the profession for a long time and are unhappy with changes, there's never been a more exciting time to enter healthcare. Uh, There have never been as many tools at the disposal of health professionals as we've got now. Uh, And uh, we can only try to imagine what tools will be made available over the coming decades. Change is challenging. But you've got to just acknowledge that change is, the only, is going to be the only constant in healthcare. Well, I guess the bones of the human body aren't going to change that rapidly. But, um, but if you don't like change, not only should you not be in healthcare, you probably would have a hard time finding any profession that you could go into now. Change is exciting. And uh, if you enter the field acknowledging that things are going to change because we need to address the changing needs presented by things like COVID and the changing opportunities presented by new tools and techniques and medical knowledge and genomic information, then change becomes exciting and you can be a leader in that change. So don't be intimidated by change and be excited by the opportunity I can't imagine any other field in which you are invited into the lives of people in as intimate a way as you are in medicine. And it's a privilege, it's an honor, and it's exciting.
1: Those are some inspiring parting words. So Dr. Scheinman, thanks so much for taking so much time to be with us today and sharing all that you and your team at Geisinger are doing to raise line.
0: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.
1: And with that, I'm Shivulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.
0: For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.